Happy Sunday, Merry Christmas, and welcome to our weekly online podcast. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to begin today's message by reading Matthew's account of Jesus' birth that's found in verses 18 through 23. And after I read through the main text this morning, um, we're going to focus in on verse 23 for the rest of our time together. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, church family, I am so excited to begin a new Christmas message series today. I'm calling this series Christmas Catchphrase. What we just read in Matthew chapter 1 and what we read about Jesus' birth in the other Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. For Christians all over the world, these accounts are accurate, powerful, and real. But Christmas will be a challenging and difficult time for many people this year. So this season, I want to give you some tools and teaching that will hopefully bring greater meaning to this season and greater opportunity for your conversations with others over the next four weeks. One challenge that many Christians face is the challenge or even the danger of allowing the Christmas story to become so familiar that it loses its meaning in our lives. It's easy to just go through the motions each year, to go through the Christmas routine, commercializing things to the point where the truth of Christmas no longer affects our lives in the way that it should. Tim Keller once said, It's easy for Christmas to become more emotional than meaningful. It's easy for Christmas to become more emotional than meaningful. I think we'd all probably agree with this statement. You know, there are Christmas catchphrases that we read, sing about, write in Christmas cards, and hear every single year. These well-known catchphrases, they can either confirm our understanding of what we believe, or they can lull us to sleep because we've completely missed the true meaning of Christmas. A catchphrase is meant to attract attention. I think the best example of this is presidential campaign slogans or, or their catchphrases. You think back to 2008, and Obama's catchphrase was, change we can believe in. A lot of people got behind this. 2016, Trump's catchphrase was, make America great again. That's probably the most well-known and and, and memorable catchphrase, right? And then in 2020, uh, Biden's, one of his many catchphrases was, our best days still lie ahead. 
So like or dislike the individual, we always remember a good catchphrase. In fact, I'd like for you to try and finish the following catchphrases after I say the first half of the phrase. Now, I'm going to need some all-church participation today. So whether you're by yourself or sitting with a family member or friend, I'll read the first half of the phrase, and then you can try to finish it. So the first one is for M&Ms. Melts in your mouth, not in your hands. All right, so if you said not in your hands, you're right. Melts in your mouth, not in your hands. All right, so now you have the hang of it. Here's the second one. This is for Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, America runs on Dunkin'. Yeah, so America runs on Dunkin'. And the last one is is State Farm. Uh, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Yeah, so these are all catchphrases that are very familiar. We all know these. Now, the Christmas story has some very memorable catchphrases as well. But there's a danger in allowing these catchphrases to become more of an emotional connection, an emotional response instead of a heartfelt conviction. So to help us overcome that this year, I want to take us through four common Christmas catchphrases. These are phrases that we all know and that we all use to hopefully help bring us back to the true meaning and message of Christmas. I don't know about you, but I could use a little realignment in my own life right now. So the first Christmas catchphrase is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Um, This phrase is actually just one word in the original Greek, but gets translated into three words in the English. Um, I'm going to read the verse. Let's see if you can catch the catchphrase. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says, Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So take a moment and uh, think about what the catchphrase might be, or if you're with someone, you can go ahead and share that with them. So if you said, God with us, you're exactly right. God with us, that's the catchphrase. This particular phrase catches what Christmas is all about and is a phrase that I hope we can all learn, remember, and recite as we remember the depth and the meaning that's contained in these three short English words. God with us. You know, when John Wesley died, his last words as he took his dying breath were, the best of all is God with us. The best of all is God with us. The last words that a person says before they pass away are usually very important. And this was definitely the case with John Wesley. So let's take a closer look at these important words from Matthew chapter 1. Today, I'd like to have the opportunity to teach on three important truths. They all come from this catchphrase. The first truth is this, that Jesus is God. That's such an important truth. We'll talk about that. The second truth is that Jesus is God with us. And then the third truth is Jesus is God with us. Now, those last two, they sound very familiar, right? Well, you'll see how they're, they're a little different. So the first truth, if you're taking notes, Jesus is God. What do I mean when I say that Jesus is God? Well, in short, it means that the creator God became a human being. He was fully God and fully man. This would have been an outlandish claim in first century culture, just as it is in our culture today. Yet everything we read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament tells us that Jesus is God. In fact, there's an important statement that we all need to hear today. And that statement goes like this. Christianity only makes sense if Jesus is God. Christianity only makes sense if Jesus is God. 
So where does the Bible tell us that Jesus is God? I'll draw your attention to the book of John, chapter 1. And I'd like to read the very first verse for you. This is what John writes. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you jump down all the way to verse 14, he shares some words that really help connect the dots for every verse that comes between verse 1 and 14. John says, So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So John's saying, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. And then you go to the book of Acts, chapter 20, uh, specifically verse 28. Now, Acts was written by Dr. Luke, but in this passage, um, it's actually a scene that we're given where the Apostle Paul is talking with the church uh, in Ephesus. He's talking with the elders that belong to this church. And this is what Paul says. He says, So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood. So who bought or purchased the church? Well, the Bible tells us that God did, and he did so with his own blood. Paul is talking about Jesus. And then in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, we read the story of the man who was lowered down through a ceiling so that Jesus could heal him. We read that Jesus first forgives this man's sins, and then he heals him physically. Now, there was a crowd around that day. There were a lot of people witnessing what was taking place. And this is how the crowd responds. Mark chapter 2, verse 7. What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus forgave this man's sins, and the crowd recognized that only God could do that. Jesus is God. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all teach us the truth that Jesus is God. The other New Testament writers also affirm over and over again that Jesus is God. The early disciples, specifically uh, the 12 that spent time with Jesus, that lived with Jesus, did ministry with Jesus, they believed that Jesus is God. They had a front row seat to his teachings Miracles, how he forgave sin, and how he demonstrated love and compassion towards others. They saw these things with their own eyes and realized that no other human being had ever lived like this. The Apostle John knew that Jesus is God. So he wrote these famous words in John chapter 1, verse 14, this verse that we just read. So the word became human and made his home among us. Jesus made his home or his dwelling among us. Jesus is God with us. For the early disciples, the only way to account for what they were witnessing and what they were experiencing was that Jesus is God. Only God could teach in the way that Jesus taught. Only God can forgive sin. Only God could perform the kind of miracles they had witnessed. Only God could live the way Jesus lived. You know, the people who were alive during this time, they, they kept asking, who is this man? The disciples asked that same question, and they concluded that he is Emmanuel, God with us. It's been said that if Jesus was not God, then he was an imposter, a liar, and the best con man the world has ever seen. But the early disciples and hundreds of other witnesses to the life of Christ 
They became believers in what Jesus said and did. They became believers in who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the other New Testament writers all wrote down what they had witnessed, and they believed that God was with them. In fact, they were willing to die for this truth. Many of them did die. So if Christianity is right, if Jesus is God, then all the rest of the New Testament makes sense. The teachings, the the miracles, and the way these early believers put their trust in Jesus, the way they lived their lives for him. But if Christianity is wrong, if Jesus is not God, then nothing else makes sense. And while the atonement for our sins by Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection are foundational to our faith, they absolutely are. It all begins with the truth that Jesus is God. If he's not, then he was just another good man who lived and died. So do you see how this catchphrase can become so familiar that it can start to lose its meaning and purpose in our lives? If we're not careful, it can become more of an emotional response rather than a meaningful conviction. Friends, this year we can affirm and stand firm on the truth that Jesus is God. The second truth that I want to talk about today is that Jesus is God with us. I capitalized each letter in that word with. Jesus is God with us. This is the part of Christmas that we all love to celebrate. It's the warm, familiar part of Christmas that we talk about most often. This is the truth that our great God came to earth and walked among people. He shared meals with people, healed people who seemed to be unhealable. He taught people the truths about the kingdom of God and took on the religious establishment of the day, who who totally messed up who God really is and what it means to live for God. Jesus came and gave a whole new face to what God looked like. You know, in the Old Testament, God didn't look like a helpless baby like what we see in Matthew chapter 1. In fact, God was somewhat terrifying. When he appears to Job in Job chapter 38, the Bible says it's out of the whirlwind. The NIV says the word storm, but whirlwind is more descriptive for what this experience would have been like. It's like a hurricane, and hurricanes, they're not warm or happy. They're they're terrifying. You typically run away from a hurricane. When God appears to Abraham in Genesis 15, he's described as a smoking furnace. When God leads the Israelites... It's by a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. And when Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 33, we read that God places him in the cleft of a rock and only allows him to see his backside after God had passed by. Now, when Moses came back down off of that experience, he had to put a veil over his face because even the backside of God was so bright and so radiant that the people were afraid to come near him. You know, I've found that many people want to have an experience with God. But they don't really want to be with God. To be with God is different than just having an emotional experience. Tim Keller explains it this way. It's possible to be in the general presence of someone and not actually meet them. I think he's saying it's possible to learn about God. You know, to go to a Bible study, a small group, to attend church, and even celebrate a holiday like Christmas without actually having met with God. 
Two weekends ago, I was introduced to a man by the name of Ajay Law. I was introduced to him through our virtual ICOM conference. That's International Conference on Missions. And this was supposed to take place in person in Indiana, but we had the privilege this year because of COVID of having it here virtually in the church. Now, Ajay is one of the founders and leaders of Central India Christian Mission, and he currently serves as the chairperson of Evangelical Fellowship of India, and he also serves as the president of Hindi Theological Board of India. So he wears a lot of hats. He's a kingdom worker. He's all over the place doing stuff for God. Ajay brought a powerful message at one of the opening Saturday sessions at the conference. Now, I had the opportunity to hear Ajay speak, but I've never actually met him in person. I know people who know him, and those who know him in person would say, this guy is the real deal. He's a passionate follower of Jesus, a true kingdom worker, that God's using him in an incredible way all over the world. See, personally, I had the opportunity to hear him speak, but I don't really know him. I've never actually spent time with him in person. What does this have to do with the message today? Well, being in the general vicinity of God is not the same thing as being with God. Many of you are familiar with a man by the name of Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther's conversion story is well known all over the world. Early on in, in life, he was a Catholic monk, a, a prolific Bible teacher, someone who prayed and took communion, but he says he, he always felt far from God, even angry with God, according to some of his own writings. Early on in his life, Luther based his relationship with God on his own works. So if he worked hard, then he must be a good person. But one day, while reading the book of Romans, he learned that the righteous shall live by faith. That's what he read in Romans 1.17. The righteous shall live by faith. It doesn't say the righteous shall live by works. It says the righteous shall live by faith. Luther realized that he wasn't truly saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Instead, he was trying to earn salvation through works. After reading these words, he put his faith in Jesus. He put his faith in Emmanuel, God with us. On the first Christmas, God came to us in the form of a baby. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to an ordinary woman. The Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature, which means he grew physically and intellectually. He experienced hunger and thirst, became weary and slept, felt sorrow and grief. And when one of his best friends died, the Bible tells us that he wept. The word became human and made his home among us. Friends, Jesus is God with us. So Jesus is God. Jesus is God with us. And the last truth that I'd like to share with you today is this, that Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God with us. I capitalize that last word, us. So who does Jesus come to be with? Well, he comes to be with shepherds, wise men who are searching for him, the humble, and those who recognize their need for God. Jesus comes for the sick, not the healthy. Jesus comes for us. Jesus is God with us. I have three short applications for you today as you think about our first Christmas catchphrase. Application number one, if Jesus is God with us, do you personally trust him with your life in that way? Or are you holding on to something this season, holding on to something that's keeping you from being all in for Christ? Are you relying on your morals? Are you relying on what culture says about Jesus? Or are you carrying around some hurt, habit, or hang-up that's, that's weighing you down? 
Friends, morals never saved anyone. Martin Luther realized that. Culture has always been opposed to Jesus and wrong about Jesus. And your hurts, habits, and hang-ups, these things don't disqualify you from being able to have a relationship with Jesus. If anything, they're what qualify you. Remember, Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. I want to encourage you to lay down your moralistic achievements. Stop following what's trendy and cultural and just be honest with God about what's going on in your life. Open your heart to trust in Jesus, the only one who can truly heal the deep wounds that you've been walking around with, the only one who can give you the right perspective and outlook on life, the only one who was ever good enough to die in your place on the cross. If Jesus is truly God with us, then trust him with your life in that way. Application number two, Christmas is about being with God. It's about being with God. This year, I've taught from the pulpit how to partner with God in prayer. What it looks like to stand firm on the promises of God in every circumstance and season. What it looks like to know God through his word and how to live for God as we look for those opportunities to serve others with compassion and to share Jesus with those who are in our circle of influence. I have a question for you today. What are you doing this season to be with God? God moved heaven and earth to be with you. He laid down his rightful place, was born as a human being, became a servant, lived a sinless life, and ultimately went to the cross where he was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead on the third day. God did so much to be with you. I want to encourage you to focus your time, focus your attention on being with him this Christmas. The third application is this. Christmas is about humbly worshiping God, giving him first place in your life. John Stott once said that if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. He goes on to say that there are only three reactions that people have to Jesus. One, they either hated him and wanted to kill him. Two, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away. Or three, they were absolutely smitten with him. And they tried to give their whole lives to him. That's what John Stott wrote in Basic Christianity. I don't think anyone can say that Jesus was just an interesting person. He's either Lord and God, or he's an imposter, a liar, and the best con man the world has ever seen. His followers were convinced that he was Emmanuel, God with us. That's what they wrote all throughout the New Testament. That's what we see all throughout the New Testament. And that's why countless Christians today will stand up and say, not a catchphrase, but a phrase filled with conviction. Jesus is God with us.